Um, I want us to turn to Proverbs chapter one. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter one. We're continuing through the book of Proverbs, gleaning the wisdom from the scriptures. Proverbs chapter one, and we'll be reading from verse 10 to 19. Again, Proverbs chapter one, beginning at verse 10 says, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. For their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Let us go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your goodness and kindness in keeping us through this week. We thank you for your many mercies which have been allotted to us abundantly in Christ. We thank you again, most of all, for the common salvation for those who are of the household of faith. And we thank you that we can gather here as your people to hear your word and sing your word and to worship you, lifting up holy hands. Lord, we pray once again that this time would be beneficial to your people. May you meet with us to bless, to encourage, to strengthen, and to correct the brethren. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the book of Proverbs in particular is filled with much wisdom regarding the subject of friendship. It speaks from everything about how to make friends, as well as the characteristics of true ones. For instance, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17 states, A friend loves at all times. A true friend will love you on good days and bad days. Prison nor poverty will deter them. And if they see you going astray, they will correct you out of love. Again, Proverbs 27 verse 6 states, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. A true friend loves you enough to tell you when you're wrong, but an enemy will allow you to go your own way. They will even take what is meant as a sign of love and use it as a covering for sin. Indeed, 
even our Lord Jesus Christ himself was betrayed with a kiss. And so as Christians, if we are to have genuine friendships, we are to hold one another accountable. We must be people who can give the truth as well as receive the truth. So ask yourself, are you the type of person that can correct a friend in humility? Or are you more concerned about winning an argument? Or do you even say anything at all? Secondly, do you handle correction well? Do you make excuses, blame shift, downplay what others point out? Or do others have to walk on eggshells when addressing issues with you? Again, the Bible also makes distinctions between different types of friends in the book of Proverbs. Not all friends are the same. Proverbs 18, verse 24, reading from the NASB states, A man of too many friends comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Everyone is a friend of the wealthy and famous because they are wealthy and famous. However, the Proverbs tells us that there is a type of friend who is even closer than family. Some of you may know the joys of such friendships, right? They're the individuals who are saved in your favorites, in your contacts. They're the first person that you share any type of news with. Now, a great example of a friend who stuck closer than a brother was Solomon's father, David, and his friend, Jonathan. If we look at the relationship between David and Jonathan, we learn much about what true friendship looks like. After David slew Goliath, we read this regarding his meeting before King Saul in 1 Samuel 18.1. It says, Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. You know, it was the philosopher Aristotle who said, what is a friend? The answer, a single soul dwelling in two bodies. This was the type of love that Jonathan and David shared. Later, after the death of Jonathan, David would write in 2 Samuel 1.26, I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. Now, some perverse individuals have taken this to mean that David and Jonathan had some sort of homosexual relationship. But this was not the meaning nor the significance. On the contrary, two men can actually love each other deeply without it becoming something sexual. Now, there is another error 
that the relationship of David and Jonathan corrects in our society in particular. It is often seen as a sign of weakness if one man exposes his emotions to another. Vulnerability is not viewed as masculinity. But here's the catch. There can be no true accountability without vulnerability. How can you help someone who shows that they have no weaknesses? You can't. And so we keep up a pretense. God forbid that we should let a brother know that we are hurting or struggling with sin. But in the wisdom of God, I believe these scriptures are offered to us so that we can correct our conception of what healthy male relationships look like. If we are to develop meaningful relationships as men, then we must be vulnerable with each other. And so, I love you should not sound weak as Christians. This is what, in fact, brotherhood looks like. Again, if I ask you how you're doing, don't say that you're fine if you just lost your job, your wife just left you, and your dog just died. Okay? You were not fine. Now, it is true that we can still rejoice in the Lord in every circumstance. But that does not mean that we must deny the reality of pain and suffering. Again, when we read through the Psalms, the psalmists were real about their struggles and emotions, and yet they still found encouragement in the Lord. And even... Christ, as manly of a man as they come, wept when it was appropriate. In fact, Christ is even called a man of sorrows. So be a David to someone and seek out a Jonathan that you may build healthy male relationships in the body of Christ. For we should all strive to be the type of friend that we ourselves want. And by the way, that David or that Jonathan doesn't have to be the same age either. Friendships aren't restricted by age. In fact, there is wisdom according to the Proverbs in having friends who are older as well. Proverbs 27 verse 10 says, Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend. Interestingly enough, this would be a proverb that one of Solomon's sons indeed should have heeded. Again, in 1 Kings chapter 12 verses 1 to 15, we read of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, again, was the son of Solomon and the next in line king of Israel. In verse 1 of chapter 12, we read, Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. All of the people 
are gathered before Rehoboam, and they come before the king with a request. Now, in verse 4, we see their request. The text says, Your father, referring to Solomon, made our yoke hard, but therefore lightened the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he had put, a, put on us, and we will serve you. Now the king says to the people, come back in three days. Let me think about it. Now at first, Rehoboam consults with the elders who served his father Solomon. However, in verse 8, we read this. But he, speaking of Rehoboam, forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. So Rehoboam, it says, forsook the counsel of the elders for the counsel of the young men that he grew up with. And we know how that all turned out, don't we? Right? It led to the once united kingdom from that point on becoming divided. And so, for all of the things that scriptures teach regarding the subject of friendship, how many of us consider the subject of friendship? How many of us consider being a good friend and looking for good friends as well? How many of us have accidental or unintentional friendships? Friendships that just happen and remain. Many of you are familiar with the writings of C.S. Lewis. He once wrote this, Friendship is born at the moment when one man says to another, What? You too? I thought that no one but myself. Now, if you think back about how many of your friendships started, we must admit that there is some truth here. It was through some shared common interests, right? Hobbies, leisure, sports, Christ. These things drew us together. And yet, friendships are not just about sharing common interests, but it's also about influence. Someone else has said this, many people will walk in and out of your life but only true friends leave footprints in your heart. <clears throat> now, the idea that's being communicated again from that quote is the idea of influence. And the scripture supports this idea. On the positive side, again, looking at the Proverbs, Proverbs 27, verse 17 states, Iron sharpens iron. So one man sharpens another. A good friend can make you a better person. They can make you more effective and useful in life, even as iron sharpens iron. While on the negative side, a bad influence can affect the very moral fiber of an individual. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read, Do not be deceived. 
Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, having said all of that by way of introduction, it is to this type of association that Solomon warns us against today. Solomon would have us to be on guard against bad company that corrupts good morals. Again, returning to our main text in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 10, we read, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Now, the title of this morning's Bible study is The Enticement of the Wicked. The Enticement of the Wicked. As we observe this text, we want to look at three things. We want to first consider the proposition, then the progression, and then finally, their perdition. So proposition, progression, and finally, perdition. First, let us consider the proposition. In the first place, a proposition is defined as something offered for consideration or acceptance. In other words, it's a proposal. Now, in our text, we see a proposition offered by one identified as a sinner. Now, while it is true that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, there is still a type of sinner who revels in violence and covetousness. They are boastful and encourage others to do likewise. To put it bluntly, they're like beasts in human skin that live life in unrestrained passion. This type of sinner, as 1 Corinthians 15 puts it, is bad company. And so, Solomon warns the young, and he warns the naive. He states in verse 10, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Now, verse 10 frames the discussion going all the way up to verse 19. The first part of the verse states, if sinners entice you. Now, the word entice here means to persuade, especially by means of deception. So, in Proverbs 25, verse 15, for instance, the word Entice is also translated as persuaded. Proverbs 25, verse 15 states, By forbearance, a ruler may be persuaded, right? That's the same, the same word. And a soft ter- tongue breaks the bone. While over in Deuteronomy 11, verse 16, the same word is translated as deceived. Deuteronomy 11, verse 16 say, states, Beware that your hearts are not deceived, right, that's our word, and that you do not turn away and serve other gods 
and worship them. So again, this word entice, found in verse 10 of Proverbs 1, means to persuade, especially by means of deception. Now, the sinner's enticing words are found in verses 11 to 14, as we will see in a moment. But consider first the initial proposition. It's simply this. Come with us. The sinner presents the allurement of community, where the interests of the individual are also the interests of the community. In essence, they say, we can be the family that you choose. Be one of us, and we will take care of you. But for all the perceived good intentions, they, there lies something sinister beneath the surface. For as soon as they make their invitation, their proposition becomes mixed with illusion and fantasy. It is a magic trick, a bait and switch, in which the sinner promises what he himself cannot guarantee. He says things like, we will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our house with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall have one purse. The sinner believes that his plans and even the outcome is sure. He makes increasingly bold and outlandish claims which he himself believes. He believes these things because he is proud and covetous. He says in verse 13, we will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our house with spoil. The sinner says that his plans will certainly lead to riches and abundance. There will be no lack. Now, this boast is like that of the man in a parable which Jesus told. In Luke chapter 12, verses 15 to 21, we read, Then he, that's Jesus, said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up. For many years to come, take your ease, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. 
And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Again, the sinner gives no thought to the sovereignty of God. They see the fruit of their labors as the result of their own effort and determination. They set a goal and speak as though no one or nothing will deter them. This is the proposition. But notice, if you will, the progression. The sinner says that in order to be one of us, you must become one with us. In other words, you must be like us in character. You must use the words we use and do the things that we do. And so, the invitation for a sense of community and belonging suddenly becomes an invitation for evil. They say in verse 11, Let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. The sinner has a seared conscience. For he purposely targets the innocent without cause. They seek to destroy them for their own gain. And their pleasure and delight is found in the pain and suffering of others. They exhibit a perverse desire to take advantage of the weak. Solomon puts it this way in verse 16. He says, Their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. He says that they are quick to shed blood. They move with haste. One commentator writes concerning this verse, Note the way of sin is downhill. Men not only cannot stop themselves, But the longer they continue in it, the faster they run and make haste in it, as if they were afraid they should not do mischief enough and were resolved to lose no time. They said they would proceed leisurely. Let us lay in wait for blood. But thou wilt find that they are in haste. So much has Satan filled their hearts. Now, not only are they in haste to commit evil, but as I stated before, their intent is also to convert the naive to be like them. Come with us, all of a sudden becomes come shed blood with us. And so, as another commentator states, No one becomes a profligate at once. Profligate, that is a wicked, shameless person. 
but evil communications corrupt good manners. The conscience, once tender, becomes less sensitive by every compliance. Who of us can stop ourselves in the downhill road? One sin prepares for another, pleads for it, nay, even makes it necessary for concealment. David committed murder to hide his adultery and for its covering charged it upon the providence of God. Again, you see this type of thing happening all the time at the abortion clinic. You do know that it's not just unbelievers who go to the abortion clinic, right? You know that, that there are many professing Christians who have gone and had an abortion. They say, I'm a Christian, but I've been living in sexual immorality. The shame will be too great if someone finds out that I'm pregnant. I must conceal this sin. God will understand. The baby must die. Again, the naive does not end up in a dark place in life all at once. It's little steps taken here and little steps taken there. And before we know it, we're wondering, how did we get all the way over here where we're saying the things that we said we would never say and doing the things that we said we would never do? How did this happen? It was through those little influences over time, following the wrong teachers and joining oneself to the wrong crowd. That's how. Well, having considered the proposition and the progression, let us now turn to their end. The end is perdition. It is destruction. Solomon says in verse 17, Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. It's useless to set a trap in the sight of a bird. The bird, by instinct, will avoid that trap. And so all effort then amounts to nothing. Now, the sinner's trap actually results in something worse. You see, it's not just that the sinner's trap amounts to nothing, but rather that their efforts hasten their own demise. While they said, let us lie and wait for blood, the reality is they lie and wait for their own blood. Again, they said, let us ambush the innocent without cause. But the truth is, they ambush 
their own lives. Because of their greed, they forfeit their own lives. Now, the person of Haman comes to mind as an example of this proverb. Haman was covetous, not for riches, but for honor. It was not enough that many people honored him, but he would not be content until all honored him. And so, in Esther chapter 3, verses 2 to 5, we read of how Haman was filled with rage because Mordecai neither bowed down to him nor honored him. And so what did Haman do? He plotted the destruction of not just Mordecai, but all of the Jews. He even had gallows erected to hang Mordecai. Now, I want you to notice that Haman was not going to get his hands dirty by executing the Jews or Mordecai himself. He was just the mastermind behind the plot. To be sure, it is obvious that some men are men of bloodshed. They live lives of wild partying and degeneration. They are brawlers and brigands. Now, I remember growing up in Brooklyn, New York, where gangs existed. Some gang members could be identified just by the colors that they wore. For instance, there was a gang called, of all things, the Bloods. And they were identified by the color red that they wore. On the other hand, there was other gangs known as the Crips. And they were identified by the blue color that they wore. These, again, are the types of people that Solomon warns against. However, some men of bloodshed do not appear to be men of bloodshed on the outside. Sometimes they wear suits. Outwardly, they are charismatic and charming, but on the inside, they are given to violence and perversion. I think of instance of men like Marshall Applewhite, co-founder of Heaven's Gate, and Jim Jones, leader of the People's Temple. Both of these men were cult leaders who influenced their own followers to commit mass suicide. They were men of bloodshed who led many astray through their enticing words. And so again, men of bloodshed can be found in all classes of society and can be very sophisticated sometimes. Some men may even be high-ranking officials like those in the case of Haman. Now, you know how the story of Esther turns out. The queen has several dinners with the king, even invites Haman. And then on the last dinner, she reveals 
Haman's plot. And suddenly, Haman's well-thought-out plan backfires. And it's not just that Haman's trap fails, but rather his trap hastens his own destruction. His desire for violence led to his own violent end. Again, in Esther 7, verses 9 to 10, we read, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Now, we see this again happening in life all the time, where a person's scheme backfires. But ultimately, even if someone gets away with the shedding of innocent blood in this lifetime, there is an omnipotent judge which we must all give an answer to. He patiently waits for their sentencing in the final hours and moments of life. With each innocent life that is taken, more holy wrath is stored up on their behalf until it finally breaks forth in hell. They are forever cast into the black abyss where the fire is not quenched and their worm does not die. This is the end of the sinner. But it will also be the end of the naive who follows in their footsteps. Again, remember the words of Solomon in verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Do not consent. Do not walk in their way. Do not follow them to eternal destruction. Again, not everyone will have the temptation to join a gang. But this proverb also speaks broadly to the types of associations that we make. Children, young people, even adults, be careful who you befriend and who you allow to influence you. Young ladies, young men, don't just give your heart to the first person who comes along and gives you some attention. Don't get caught up in their looks and their enticing words. But look at their lives and consider the future for which we must all give an account. Again, you need to know what that person is about. But even before you go to investigate what that person is about, 
you need to settle what you're about. Joshua 24 verse 15 states, Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Some people will lead you astray and bring you into eternal destruction. But in the final analysis, you will only have yourself to blame, for you were uncommitted to the way of wisdom. And so, I ask you this day, children, young people, how long will you waver between the way of the wicked and the way of wisdom? How long will you ignore the path that leads to eternal life? Fix your eyes upon Christ. For he was called a friend of sinners. For there is no other name in which you might be saved. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. Not, in, not just in giving us general revelation that you exist. And not just of your power in general revelation. But you have given us special revelation. You have given to the people of God the word of God. That instructs us. And how then shall we live? Lord, I pray indeed that you would take this word and drive it home to the hearts of your people as has been prayed before. I pray, Lord, that you would also take your word as an arrow that it might pierce the heart of those who do not know you. We pray for our children. We pray for our young people who even at this moment may be resisting the Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would overcome that resistance by your power, by your might, that you would draw them onto yourself, that you would once again raise up another generation who will say, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. Again, Lord, we pray on this day, the day when we celebrate your resurrection. We pray that we would worship you with all of our heart, with all of our life, that you would receive all glory, honor, and praise. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.